Good morning, folks. Welcome. Hey, guys in the balcony. Good to see you all. Everyone downstairs, say hi to the guys in the balcony. Everyone in the balcony, say hi to the folks downstairs. All right, now you've said hi to each other. Meet in the cafe afterwards. Brilliant. Well, if you're visiting Destiny, it's so good to have you with us today. My name's Pete, pastor here at Destiny. Uh, We're going to take time to dig into the Bible, and uh, we believe that the Bible is God's Word, and He speaks today, and He speaks into our lives, and as we're turning to the Bible, I fully anticipate that He will speak into our lives. So open your hearts. Let's pray. Father, thank you for each and every person here today. Thank you, God, that you love us. Thank you that you're very present. And God, I ask you just now as we turn to the Bible, that you would do the miracle you do week in, week out, that miracle of speaking, that miracle of changing our lives. God, would you say things that are so direct into our spirits that we would leave you a changed people? I pray for anyone today who's coming with a sense of desperation in their heart, that today they'd find you, God, the God who answers every desperate cry of our hearts. Pray for anyone who's physically sick, that miracles would happen here today. Pray people who are being oppressed by dark, demonic spirits. I ask in the name of Jesus that your power would bring light with his darkness and set people free. And most of all, God, I pray for people who are not yet connected with you today. Today would be the day where they fall in love with God and they leave totally changed by your power and love. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, so we're in a series looking at the, in the, in the New Testament, there are 59 times where one another is used. So have compassion for one another, forgive one another, love one another. There's lots of one another's. Why? Well, because God doesn't want you to do life alone. He wants you to be able to do life in community with one another. Um, so today, my title is Love Intervenes. Say, Love Intervenes. I'm going to specifically focus on forgiveness. There was a Catholic priest in his confessional booth waiting for someone to come in and ask for forgiveness. And he was sitting there waiting, and there wasn't many people around that day. And then eventually, a drunk guy staggers into the booth next to him and sits there in silence. The priest is expecting him to say something, but he doesn't say a thing. So the priest kind of clears his throat to try and get his attention. And the guy just sits in silence. So eventually, the priest decides to knock the the partition between him and the guy in the confessional. So he's knocking the partition, knock, 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 three times. And the guy in the partition, across the partition next to him says, there's no point knocking, mate. There's no paper in this one either. (laughs) Anyway, but needing forgiveness is a hugely, hugely important thing. And when I'm talking about the subject of forgiveness, it's it's a hard subject, joking aside, forgiveness is a tough subject because some of you are carrying serious wounds in your soul. Wounds because you were abused. Someone abused you verbally, emotionally, physically, sexually. You know, the World Health Organization reported, and this is tragic, 20% of women globally have experienced some form of sexual abuse. 5 to 10% of men globally have experienced some form of sexual abuse. So some of you are carrying huge issues of forgiveness because of that. 
Some of you are struggling with forgiveness issues because a spouse broke your trust, broke your trust, broke your heart, broke your trust, and you don't know if you can forgive. Some of you were mistreated by someone who calls himself a believer. Some of you were mistreated by someone who calls himself a Christian leader. Some of you were mistreated at the hands of a, a, a spouse, a parent figure, or an employer. And you're battling with this idea of forgiveness. For some of you, you can't forgive yourself. It's not that you need forgiveness from someone else. You, need, you can't even forgive yourself. And no matter how much you tell yourself, oh, God can forgive you, you just can't bring yourself to forgive yourself. The Bible verse I want us to kind of launch off today, and to be honest, this verse will provide us like a framework of where we're going to go in this next short time together, is Colossians chapter 3, verse 13. I want you to read it with me. It's going to come up on the screen. Let's read it together. One, two, three. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Repeat that last bit with me. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And one more time, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Okay, that is our foundation, and it gives us the power to forgive. That's dynamite, that verse. What I'm going to do is I'm just going to let that verse kind of give us a framework that I'm going to work through. And that framework in this message starts with God, and then it works all the way back to us, and it empowers us to be able to forgive. But we've got to start with God. And uh, point number one is He intervenes. He intervenes. He's the God who intervenes. Um, some of you will recognize this famous painting by Michelangelo. It's one of the most famous sections of the Sistine Chapel. It's, it's called uh, Creation of Adam. It's, it's this famous picture of God uh, reaching out to Adam, who he'd created. And uh, I don't know if you see the problem with Adam. Well, there's a few problems with Adam. But the, but the, the problem with Adam, uh, it's okay, he's, 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 first of all, let's look at God. Okay? God's earnest. God is yearning. God is reaching for Adam. And there's an earnestness and there's an intensity about God. But amongst other problems with Adam is that he's kind of he's a bit chilled out. He's a bit unbothered. He's a bit unfazed. And he's kind of half-heartedly reaching out to God, where God is wholeheartedly reaching out to Adam. Right at the beginning of time, right at the beginning of our Bibles, we see a rebellion took place where humankind rejected their Creator. That is the problem behind every problem you and I face on planet Earth, behind every war, behind every abuse, behind every heartbreak. The problem behind all problems is in every human being. Don't point at Adolf Hitler, point at yourself. It's called sin, and it's in our hearts. The heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. It's called sin. It's our rejection of God, and it started with our first parents, Adam and Eve. And when Adam and Eve had rejected God, how did God respond to that rejection? I mean, how do you respond to rejection? How do you respond when you are rejected and treated as, as if you're nothing? Well, how did God respond to rejection? Answer, he pursued Adam. He didn't give up. He didn't quit on him. And he, God hasn't changed his agenda towards humanity. God came into the garden in Genesis chapter 3, and he cried out, where are you? Adam, where are you? 
Why? Because God, from the very beginning, even at that point of a human rebellion, has been pursuing the human race, which has continued to rebel against God. And the Bible is a story of God constantly intervening, pursuing humanity. You know, uh, if, 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 when, when my kids were much smaller, my kids are kind of teenagers now, but when my kids were much smaller, and we went for a, a picnic in the woods, and Becky and Michael were running around having fun, we're having a picnic, and at the end of that time, imagine like we've, we've tidied up all the picnic stuff, we take it all, walk back to the car, we get back to the car, and we put the picnic stuff in the car, and Becky gets in the car, but we suddenly realize, oh no, where's Michael? We, we, we've left Michael. I mean, what do we do? Do we say, all right, win some, lose some? Okay, I mean, you know, we've still got Becky. Is that what we do? No, we wouldn't do that. What do you do? You get right back into the woods. You go hunting. You go looking. You go searching because you don't want to. You don't want to lose any of them. You want to rescue all of them, and that's the heart of God. Jesus describing the heart of God is exactly the same verse that Liz read earlier, Matthew eighteen verse twelve. Jesus said, "What do you think? If a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the ninety-nine in the hills and go look for the one that wandered off?" And you might be the one that's wandered off, and God is pursuing you. That's God's heart. He pursues you. You know, in, in the Bible, someone who isn't a follower of Jesus, today we might call them unsaved, or unchurched, or non-Christian. But that's not, none of those phrases are in the Bible. The phrase that the Bible used to describe someone who isn't yet in relationship with God is lost, lost. And that's not a negative. Lost is not a negative. Lost is different to rejected. You see, lost infers you have an owner. Lost infers that you have value. Someone is missing you. That's how it describes people who don't yet know God. And as a church, our vision is to see the lost one and the one winning. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 53, it describes us and it says, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to our own way. Our lostness isn't the fact that we've wandered off somewhere physically. Our lostness is the fact that we've wandered away from God spiritually. We don't want God's will in our lives. We don't want God's ways in our life. We don't, we're not interested in God, and yet He's everything, and we've walked away from Him. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. So what did the Lord do? Well, the Lord intervenes. The Lord has pursued us. And how did God pursue us? In the most remarkable way, it says, and the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. What did the, what did the God, creator of the universe do for the world that had rejected Him? Answer, God became a man. Jesus Christ walked this earth, and He died on a cross. And on that moment on the cross, all of our sin, that was the problem, the sin, all of our sin was placed on Jesus. As He died on that cross, He paid the price for all of your sin. On your worst day, you are worth the price of the blood of Jesus. On your worst, when you're at the worst of your worst, you are worthy to God of the blood of Jesus Christ. That's how valuable you are to God. It's incredible. If I was to pull out of my pocket a 20-pound note and say, who wants the 20-pound note? Who would put your hands up? Yeah, right. <laughs> who would put your hand up? Okay, all of you would put your hand up. Who wants a 20-pound note? You'd all put your hand up. If I told you that 20-pound note 
had been used uh, for drug deals, in prostitution. It's been around various gambling dens. Just to be clear, I wouldn't have taken them to these places. I'm just telling you, that's where, the, that's, that's where that 20 quid note has been, right? And then I asked you about that same 20 pound note. Who would still want the 20 pound note? If you're honest, you'd all put your hands right back up again, okay? Because you know, okay, I don't care where it's been. And you need to understand your value is not determined by what you have done or haven't done or where you've been. Your value is determined by God, by the very fact. See, that 20 pound note is still valuable because it is a proper 20 pound note. It's not forgery. It's the real deal. It's to do with who made it gives it its value. And so therefore, I don't care, and God doesn't care ultimately where you've been, what you've done, how low you have gone. The good news is you're valuable by virtue of the fact that God created you. You're made in the image of God, your designer. He created you in your mother's womb uniquely. There's no one like you. Also, the very fact he didn't just create you, he died for you. The one he created, he died for you. Boy, do you have value in the sight of God. You are valuable to God. Say, God intervenes. I'm so glad that God intervenes. Next point is, it becomes very personal. God intervenes for us. He intervened for us. I remember when it happened for me. Because I'm taking you on a journey to help us get to the point where we can forgive. But before we get to the point where we can forgive, we've got to understand the journey. So not only does God intervene, He intervened for us. Jesus had an interaction with one of His disciples, Peter. And Peter asked him a question, Matthew chapter 18, verse 21. Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. Jesus said to him, I say, do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. So here's this interaction between Peter and Jesus. And to be honest, I think Peter thought he was being generous. You know, if, if my brother sins against me, you know, seven times, I'll, I'll keep forgiving him. Is that, is that right, Jesus? Seven times? And Peter thought, that's pretty generous. You know, that's pretty generous. Now, the Pharisees, the, the rabbis of Jesus' time, they said, if someone sins against you, three times forgive them in the day. Three times. So Peter was up on the level, you know, seven times. That would have been generous. So what is, what is Jesus' answer? Jesus' answer was, no, I say to you, 70 times seven, which is 490 times. Okay, now that helps because Sammy's my work colleague. And so all of a sudden, now there's a bit of leeway here because, you know, by 10 in the morning, thank God it wasn't just seven times, right? It's 490 times. So is it that, all right, you've 490 chances, and when you get to 491, uh-uh, okay, no more forgiveness. Is that what he's saying? I don't think that's what he's saying. I think he's saying, who's counting? I think what Jesus is saying in that answer is he's kind of letting you and I know not just how we should forgive each other, but he's kind of giving you a God perspective on things. He's kind of letting you know this is how God interacts with human beings. God doesn't count. God just keeps forgiving, and he just keeps forgiving. And when you thought all his forgiveness is gone, he just keeps forgiving. That's the God we say. Everyone grateful for a God like that? I'm grateful for a God like that. I'm so grateful. Now, Peter's question prompts Jesus to give a parable. So straight after that question, he says, no, I say to you 70 times seven, and then he goes on to tell this parable. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. 
When he began to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed 10,000 talents. Say 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold and his wife and children and all that he had and payment be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. All right, we'll pick that up in a few moments because the parable continues, but we'll stop there for a moment. So who in the parable is the master? The answer, God. Who in the parable is the servant? Answer, us. And the point is that every one of us will have to give an account before God for our lives. When this man was brought before the master, like we will be brought before God, the man had a a 10,000 talent debt. Now, we don't, we don't use talents these days. We don't have, a, we don't have any idea what does, what does that mean? How much is that? Okay, but let me give you some perspective on it. 10,000 talents of gold. One talent is actually a, it's a, it's a measurement of weight. One talent was 34.3 kilograms. 30, you ever tried to live a, lift a dumbbell? A 34 kg dumbbell. Anyone tried to lift something like that? That's heavy, right? Imagine that of solid gold. That's one talent. One talent. 10,000 talents. That's 380 tons of gold. <laughs> 380 tons of gold. That's insurmountable. And listen to how the guy replies. Have patience with me, and I will pay you back everything. Are you kidding me on? <laughs> Are you kidding me on? Bedtime, I'll be able to pay back 380 tons of gold. Are you kidding me on? It's so ludicrous. It's so ludicrous. And that's how ludicrous religion is. You see, 10,000 talent debt is a picture of the scale of our sin before a holy God. And what religion says is, yeah, give me a bit of time, God, I'll deal with it. You're kidding me? You're going to pay back 380 tons of gold. I mean, how many lifetimes are you talking? I don't think so. Religion says, give me a bit of time and I'll be able to earn my way to God. It's a lie. It's a deception. It's a delusion. You're as deluded as a person who thinks they can pay back 380 tons of gold. You are deluded, my friends. You have no hope of saving yourself by your religiosity. You need a savior. You need mercy to be shown to you. Man, how can God just forgive us our sin? How can God just clear our debt? 1 Peter 3 verse 18, Christ died for our sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. You see, our debt, our sin, it's like Jesus is an interaction with someone one day and, and the guy's saying, Jesus, I'm good enough to get into heaven. I'll do enough good things and then you'll accept me into heaven. Jesus takes him to the Scott Monument on Princess Street and he gets his business card out and, and he turns it over to the blank side and he said, okay, on the blank side, I want you to write down who is the, who is the worst person you can think about who's ever lived. So the guy thinks, Adolf Hitler. So he says, right, write his name at the bottom of the card. So he writes down Adolf Hitler at the bottom. 
I said, who is the best person you know who's ever lived? And he puts down Peter, no, he puts down Mother, Mother Teresa. Mother Teresa at the top. Mother Teresa. Okay, and then Jesus said, okay, that's your scale. Adolf Hitler, Mother Teresa. Where are you on the scale? So the guy thinks, all right, I don't want to be cocky and put myself up there with Mother Teresa. And also, I don't want to go into the second half. So he kind of takes the halfway line and puts himself just above the halfway line in the good part. He said, there you are, that's where I am, Jesus. And Jesus said, that's brilliant. Now put the, put the business car on the grounds at the foot of the Scott Monument in the grass with Mother Teresa at the top. Then come with me. And he goes all the way up to the top of the Scott Monument, all the way up to the very top. And he says, now look down. Can you see that business card down there? And he looks down and he sees this tiniest little white dot at the foot of the Scott Monument. He says, right down there is your scale of measurement. But up here is the standard called holiness and righteousness. This is what it takes to get into heaven up there. You see, no one's good enough. If people could be good enough to get into heaven, then why did Jesus have to die? Seriously? Why did Jesus have to die to clear all our debt if people could be good enough? Because you, know, you tell me that people weren't good enough before Jesus, or people weren't religious before Jesus. Of course they were. Probably more devout than they are today. I'm telling you, being good enough is not good enough. You needed a Savior, one who was sinless, one who was pure and holy, one who happened to be fully God and fully man to die in your place. Christ died for sins once for all. The righteous for the unrighteous. We're all unrighteous. We needed the righteous one to die on behalf of the unrighteous. We owed a debt we couldn't pay. He paid the debt he didn't owe. And because of Jesus, and when you put your trust in Jesus, you get saved. Your sins are forgiven. Your heaven bounds. That's how you get saved. And when I was 15, I did that. I trusted in Jesus. And in that moment, when I trusted in Jesus, in that moment, it was like the master says, I have mercy on you. And he cleared the 10,000 talent debt in a second, in the instant. When I put my trust in Jesus, my debt was cleared. 1 John chapter 1 verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Isn't that good news? If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And, but you know, you, you might, I mean, I don't know about you, but has anyone sinned since they've become a Christian? Okay, a few of you. I knew you had. I knew you had. So it's what happens? Well, you say, God, forgive me. God, forgive me. And He forgives. And it's just, it's just like that. He just forgives. And you think, that was too easy, God. Because when you've blown it and you ask his forgiveness and you say, I confess my sins, God, and and he forgives you. You kind of want it to be a bit, all right, it's going to be more than that, surely, God. I've got to feel it for at least a day. Or you can't just forgive me just like that. And so so you kind of live with this sense of sadness for a day or two. And okay, now I'll ask for forgiveness again. God will say, well, what are you talking about? I forgave you when you first asked. Just because you're still in the emotion of your own failure and you're down on yourself doesn't mean that God didn't instantly acquit you the moment you asked. And you think, that's too easy. Well, it isn't really. He paid for it to be possible. It cost him everything. 
but it is incredibly gracious. Jesus said to Peter, who said, should I forgive them seven times? No, Jesus said, no, no, 70 times seven. Because that's exactly how God is. You blow it, he just keeps forgiving. He just keeps forgiving. He just keeps forgiving. He didn't just pursue you to get you saved. Now you're saved, he just keeps pursuing you. He just keeps pursuing you. He's your shepherd. He doesn't let go of you. You're not going anywhere. He's got you. Anyone grateful to God? Say, thank you, Jesus, for saving my soul. He's so good. Now, have you allowed him to intervene for you? I'm not asking you, are you religious? Because we've already ascertained that that's not good enough. I'm asking you, have you allowed him to be your savior? Or are you still in your arrogance deciding, I'm good enough, I can save myself? I'm not talking about becoming a member of my church here. You'd be very welcome to, but I'm not talking about, this is between you and God. One day, you before God will have to stand. We won't be there. Well, hopefully some of us will be there. (laughs) But what I'm saying is it'll be a personal moment between you and God. Have you trusted Jesus to be your savior or not? That's the only question that counts. No one's good enough. Have you trusted Jesus to be your savior? Today, make that decision. Now, the parable doesn't stop there. Jesus picks up the parable, and, it's, and the reason he doesn't stop there is because us getting things right with God isn't where it ends, because there is an instant implication of now how do we interact with each other. It goes on in the verses, verse 28. But when the same servant went out, this is the guy who's just had his debt cleared. He went out and found one of the citizens, one of his fellow servants, who owed him 100 denarii. That's different to 10,000 talents, right? A hundred denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, pay me what you owe me. And his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. But he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And when they reported to their master what had taken place, then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all of your debt because you pleaded with me. And should, now, yeah, should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? In his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. And so my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Wow. Wow. So here's this second servant. So the, serv- the, the first servant's just been forgiven by this, of, of this insurmountable debt. And then he goes and finds the second servant who owes him 100 denarii. Now, 100 denarii is a very different quantity. One denarii is one day's wages. So this guy owes him 100 days wages. Question, could he pay that back? Yeah. It's not nothing. It's not nothing but you could pay it back. And this represents the first debt, the 10,000 talents represented our debt before God. 100 denarii represents our debt before each other. When someone sins against you folks, it's not nothing. It really isn't nothing. But compared to the scale of our sin between us and God, all of a sudden it puts it in perspective. Someone hurts you, it's not nothing. But it's nothing compared to what has been forgiven on your account. And he gives him the same speech. Have patience with me and I will pay you everything. You'd, you'd have thought in that, in that moment the first servant would have had a deja vu moment. Think, 
women, I asked for that, and God forgave me. And here's me now getting the opportunity to show mercy to someone else. But instead, he hardened his heart. Dr. James Roskap, a theologian, he said this, when a man lives without mercy to others in God's world, he simply shows off the fact that he himself has never responded aright to the immeasurable mercy of God. If you're living mercilessly towards other people, I can only conclude that you haven't marinated your soul long enough in the truth that God has forgiven your sins. Because if you knew, if you knew the scale of what God had forgiven on your account, man, I get that what they've done is hard. I get it. I'm not, I'm not belittling that in any way. It is something. But I'm telling you, compared to what has been forgiven, it really does put it into perspective. So, point number three, we intervene. So, God's the God who intervenes, and He intervened for us. Now, we intervene. Now, we intervene. And I've got five ways that we can forgive others. Number one, embrace God's forgiveness of you. Colossians 3.13, we read it at the beginning, bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Say that with me, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Embrace God's forgiveness. For some of you who say, Peter, I can't even forgive myself. Listen to what C.S. Lewis, the author of Anarnia, said. Listen to this. If God forgives you, we must forgive ourselves. Otherwise, it's almost like we're setting ourselves up as a higher tribunal than God. If you're saying, I can't forgive myself, and yet God forgives you, you're, you're setting yourself up like you're a higher judge than God. That what you think is more important than what God says. No. If God's verdict over your life is, I forgive you for your sins based on the cross, based on your faith in me, then who are you to say, well, I don't forgive myself for my sins. Humble yourself. Accept it. Accept it. Accept it. Receive His grace. Let it change your soul. Knowing you have been forgiven empowers you to forgive others. No matter how hard that is to forgive another person, always remember, that's a hundred denarii debt compared to the 10,000 talent debt that has been cleared before God. Max Lucado, the Christian author, he said this, you will never forgive anyone more than God has already forgiven you. You will never forgive anyone more and God has already forgiven you. The picture on my PowerPoint today is it's a statue in Londonderry, and it's, it's entitled Hands Across the Divide, and it's a sculpture by a, an Irish, Northern Irish sculptor, and it was unveiled in 1992, 20 years after Bloody Sunday, uh, that, 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 that there's, because of the conflicts in Ireland, and this, this, and this sculpture represents the people from the two communities, reaching across and seeking reconciliation. But here's the point. The point is this, that God reached out to you, and that means now you can reach out to another person. And when you marinate your soul and meditate and allow the truth of his forgiveness of you to really impact you, then the next step should instantly be you reach out to another person and show grace to them. 
That, that guy in the parable, what's the first thing he should have done having been cleared his day? I reckon the first thing should have been, let's find someone else who I can forgive. Surely that would have been the most natural thing. And yet he did the opposite. Why? Because he hadn't really grasped what had happened to him. Grasp what's happened to you. And, when you, and really grasp what's happened to you. And every time you seek vengeance against another person, go back and think about the cross again. Think about Jesus. And then show mercy. Number two, don't wait to forgive. Don't wait to forgive. Don't wait for them to ask for forgiveness. You know, you might, you might not be forgiving someone because you're waiting for them to come to you and say, I am so sorry for what I did. I want to give you some bad news today. That day may never come. They may never acknowledge that what they did against you was wrong. So if you're waiting for, you're, you're holding back forgiveness until they come and ask for forgiveness, then you might be waiting all your days. They might never acknowledge what they did was wrong. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, in front of him were the people who had just crucified him. They were not asking for forgiveness. And yet Jesus said in Luke 23, verse 34, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. I've got incredibly good news for you today. You do not need to wait for anyone to ask for forgiveness before you give forgiveness. That's really good news. You know, don't wait till you feel like forgiving them. Because that day may never come. You, feelings of, oh, I want to forgive this person. That feeling might never come. Don't wait for the feelings to come. Let your feelings catch up with you. Make a decision. Make a choice. Today, make a choice to forgive those that hurt you. Otherwise, it will continue to erode your soul. The, the crazy thing with unforgiveness is this. You think they don't deserve for me to forgive them. And so it's almost like you're punishing them by not forgiving them. But the reality is, oftentimes they don't even know that you, don't think, that you haven't forgiven them. And the person who's punished is yourself. Because bitterness erodes your soul more than it impacts them. Someone said, unforgiveness is like drinking poison and hoping the other person dies. It's you who suffers. Whereas forgiveness is setting someone free from prison. And then you suddenly realize that that someone is yourself. So you've got to get singing that frozen song, let it go. You've got to let it go. You've got to let it go. Don't wait to forgive. So what about the emotion? Because even if you let it go, the emotion just might not still be there. And the next day, you could, you, today you could just say, okay, Peter, I get the point. I'm going to forgive them. But tomorrow you wake up and that horrible emotion is still there. Do you know what? It might stay there for a while, but the next few steps will help the deal with the emotion. If you can just keep walking that forgiveness as a daily decision, then eventually the emotion will get quieter and quieter and quieter. And the next step is important. Number three, treat them like they're forgiven. After you've chosen to forgive someone, treat them like they're forgiven. Luke chapter 6, verse 27 to 28, Jesus said, love your enemies, do good for those, to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. That's mental. You kidding me? You kidding me? 
Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. I'll pray for them, all right? <laughs> Give them the worst form of hemorrhoids, the worst kinds, you know? Is that, no, no, that's not what he's saying. It's not what he's saying. I, I just said what you were thinking. That's not what he's saying. Rein it in, guys. The word bless me is a Greek word which means to speak well of, to speak well of. You see, right attitude precedes right action. You want to do the right thing? You've got to have the right attitude first. Proverbs chapter 17, verse 9 says this, he who covers and forgives an offense seeks love, but he who repeats or harps on about a matter separates even close friends. There's got to come a point where you forgive and then you just move on. Don't even repeat it. Say nothing. Say nothing. Someone said, oh, when, when my wife is angry, she gets historical on me. And, and they said, you mean hysterical? I said, no, no, I mean historical. She brings up all the stuff in my past and she reminds me about, she keeps reminding you, remember you did this, remember you did this, remember you did this. Don't laugh, men. Just take it, just take it. Do not repeat a matter. Do not keep digging it up. You keep digging it up. It's like picking that scab off. Just let it heal. Don't keep repeating it. If there's been, a, there's been a moment of interaction where forgiveness was given, then move on. Move on. Jeremiah 31, 34. God says about us, I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. God chooses to forget our sins. When you ask for God's forgiveness... He remembers your sin no more. Now, just to be clear on this one, God is omniscient. He knows all. I don't think it means like he's around heaven thinking, wait a minute. There's a whole pile of stuff I've forgotten. I, I, I don't, you know, what was it you did again? I don't think, I don't think like he's lost the plot and I don't think he's like forgotten a whole pile of stuff. I don't think that's God, right? I think what it means when it says, I will remember their sin no more. I think what he's saying is this. He will no longer interact with us on the basis of our sin. He will only interact with us based on the fact that we are in Christ, and Christ's righteousness has been given to us, and Christ's reward has been given to us because our sin was given to Christ. His punishment, our punishment became his punishment. His reward becomes our reward, and God now only interacts with you as a believer in response to Christ. You are as loved as Christ is before the Father. You are as close to the Father as Christ is before the Father. You are as accepted eternally as Christ is before the Father. Could Christ ever be rejected and dispelled from the presence of the Father? Never. So neither can you be rejected or dispelled from the presence of the Father. You are as secure as Christ is within that Trinitarian relationship with his heavenly Father. Isn't that good news? So do not interact with each other based on your sins any longer. When you forgive, forget. Don't raise it. Don't gossip about them. Don't say, oh, do you hear what they did? Don't say it. Zip. Say nothing. Treat them like they're forgiven. Fourthly, be a peacemaker. Romans 12, verse 18. If it is possible, that's important, if it is possible, because it might not be, but if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. That's what God did. That's what God did. God didn't want this lack of harmony between him and the human race. So as far as it depended on him, he took the initiative. He intervened. He paid the price on the cross. So people of God, if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Go put things right. Don't settle 
for things not being right with someone, with another human being, if it's possible. Now, you might do your part, and they're not interested. Then you've done your part. Well done. That's why it's saying if it's possible, reach out, write the letter, make the phone call, turn up at the door, do what you can. Then having done what you can, you've done what you can. Matthew 5 verse 9, Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Say peacemaker. He didn't say blessed are the peacekeepers. He said blessed are the peacemakers. So peacekeepers are the person who just don't want to rock the boat. You know, don't rock the boat. Just, be, just keep the peace. Keep the peace. Don't, don't say anything too con- con- confrontational. Don't, 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 raise the, don't raise that issue. Don't be a, just, just keep the peace. UN had peacekeepers. They have peacekeeping forces and they send them into conflict zones. And some of you will remember years ago in the former Yugoslavia, the UN peacekeepers were there trying to keep the peace between two warring factions, but right in front of them. They had guns, they had weaponry, but right in front of them, uh, genocide took place, and the peacekeepers stood by while all hell broke loose in front of them. Why? Because they weren't interventionists. They were just there to keep the peace. They weren't peacemakers, they were peacekeepers. And God wants you and I to be peacemakers. That's what makes you, that's, you're a son of God. In other words, you're acting just like God. Like, like father, like son. You're being just like God because he's a peacemaker. He's the one who builds the bridges. You see, Jesus gave us two verses, and I think it's so interesting. Listen to this verse. As you're reading this verse, ask yourself, okay, who's the sinner in this verse? Matthew chapter 8, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go show him his fault between the two of you, and if he listens, you've won back your brother. You've won your brother over. Who's the one who sins? Them. Who's the one who's got to put it right? You. Okay, next verse. Look, look for who's, who's done the wrong thing here. Matthew 5, verse 23. If you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar and first go and be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Who's the one who sins? You. Who's the one who's got to put it right? You. The point is this, whether they're the one who sins against you, or whether you're the one who's caused the offense against them, Jesus kind of paints you into a corner here, and he says, either way, who's got to put it right? You, (laughs) okay? So whether you're the victim or the victor, you are the one, God says, to go put it right. You see, if you're going to build a bridge between you and them, you can only start building the bridge from your sides, Okay, you can't build from their side. You can only build from your sides. So whether it's you or them, the problem's with you. Say, it's my problem. Say it again, it's my problem. So if, if, if there are conflicts in the church, and by the way, that will happen. It will. If you haven't been offended at destiny yet, it's just simply because you haven't been around long enough. Give it a few more weeks. You will be offended. So, mark my words. Someone will wind you up the wrong way. Someone will say things the wrong way. Someone will say, they will, they will ignore you when they should have taken note. They will treat you when, badly when you're going through the Why? Because we're in a room full of human beings, right? You're not a room full of angels. You're a room full of human beings. Yeah, you've been redeemed. Yeah, you're saved. Yeah, you're going to heaven. But you're still pretty messed up. Me too. And so you're going to stand on each other's toes. 
opportunity to become more like Jesus. Not an opportunity to jump ship and say, oh, well, the Lord is leading me on to another church. No, he's not. He's not. Repent, shallow people, and stay planted, and build strongly, and resolve conflict. If your brother sins against you, or your sister sins against you, go talk to them. And in doing so, you're changed, they're changed. It's uncomfortable, but you go deeper. You become more mature. Don't stop running from things. Face things. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And fifthly, let the cross be central in your relationships. In 1904, a statue was built on the border between Chile and Argentina. And the statue is called Christ of the Andes. It's right high up in the Andes mountain, Christ of the Andes. And these two countries, which had been at war with each other, built this statue and said this. They made a peace treaty. And the peace treaty was this. As long as this statue stands, there will be peace between Argentina and Chile. Some of the Chile, after it was made, some of the Chileans protested that, wait a minute, why has Christ got his back turned towards our country, Chile? And uh, they got a little bit upset about that. But a Chilean journalist saved the day by saying, now Jesus has to look over the Argentinians because the, he's got to keep an eye on them more than he has to keep an eye on us. <laughs> but Christ is the foundation of peace. That cross is the foundation of peace. You see, the, the, re, the, reason, the reason I can forgive my wife or she can forgive me, the reason I can forgive a brother and he can forgive me, the reason you can live at peace with each other is completely to do with the cross. If the cross wasn't there, we would have no basis for forgiveness. But because of the cross, we have the ultimate basis for forgiveness. There is opportunity for grace in every situation. There's opportunity for mercy in every single situation you and I face because of the cross. Let that be the foundation. Colossians 3, bear with each other, forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Let's pray. God, thank you so much that you're calling us to live in this life of radical mercy and amazing grace. Jesus, thank you so much that you ultimately modeled for us this incredible forgiveness, this grace. You paid the price for us. You took away our sin, and you, ought, you now tell us, now bear with each other. Let go of your grievances forgive as I have forgiven you. I pray, God, that we will be a radical community of grace, that God, not a perfect church, but a church full of people who have known what grace is, and then give that same grace to other people, who know what mercy is, and show that same mercy to other people, who know what forgiveness is, and show that same forgiveness towards other people. I pray we would live like that, Lord God, in Jesus' name. In God's presence just now, if you're carrying a grudge against someone else, it might be someone in the room. It might be someone in the church. It might be someone in your family. It might be someone from your past. That you will never feel like forgiving that person. Your emotions might never engage with that. And they might never come and ask you for forgiveness. But God is calling you nevertheless to forgive so in God's presence, based on the fact that God has forgiven you, 
make a choice today. Right now, make a choice. I will forgive that person. Make a choice. Make a choice. And not in every situation, but in some situations, it might be right for you to tell them that. For you to write to them. For you to phone them. Make the choice now. Make the choice. It's not going to be easy, but make the choice. Forgive them. Just as God forgave you. Take a bit of time praying your own response to God just now. And hey, maybe today you're here and you haven't yet got a relationship with God. Do you know Him? Do you know what it is to have your sins forgiven? Do you know what it is to go to know that you're going to heaven and knowing that God is your Father? If you're not yet in that relationship with God, this is for you. Right now, I'm going to give you an opportunity to very simply pray a prayer where in your heart you get to dedicate yourself to God. You ask Him for His forgiveness. Just like the servant in that parable, you're coming before Him with your huge debt and you're coming to the King who paid the price for your debt and you're asking Him for that forgiveness. If that's you today, then very simply, under your breath, pray this prayer with me just now. This is between you and God. Pray this prayer with me under your breath. Dear Lord God, thank you for being so merciful. Jesus, thank you for being willing to die for me on the cross. I realize that I am a sinner. And I believe you, Jesus, are the Savior. Thank you that on the cross, you paid the price for all of my sin. Every sin I ever will or have committed. I believe in you, Jesus. And right now, I receive your forgiveness. I believe you rose again from the dead, Jesus. And I believe you're alive right now. I commit myself to you. I choose now to be a follower of yours. Thank you for hearing my prayer. Be Lord of my life today and from now on. Thank you, God. Keep your eyes closed, every one of you. I want to pray for anyone today who prayed that prayer, very simple prayer, but a hugely, eternally significant prayer. If you've put your trust in Jesus today to be your Savior, I'd like to pray for you. Just wherever you are in this auditorium, if you prayed the prayer, could you just simply raise your hand? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Is there anyone else? It's the greatest decision ever. He's heard your prayer. One last time, is there anyone else you prayed that prayer? Just quickly slip your hand up and say, that's me too. God, thank you so much for my friends today who in your presence have prayed that prayer. And for anyone else who prayed but they didn't put their hand up, thank you, you've heard their prayer too. And I ask right now, God, that they would know that amazing forgiveness of God they will know that their debt is cleared, that Jesus did it all for them. They can walk free knowing the weight has been lifted, knowing the debt has been paid, knowing that the prison is open and they are now free people. Bless them, encourage them, fill them with your love and power in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.